0: What up all you beautiful Misfits and Rejects out there. Thank you for joining me for episode 188 of Misfits and Rejects. In today's episode, I spoke with Ray Blankney from LiveLingua.com. Ray and his wife have one of the largest online Spanish language schools, as well as four other businesses, many of which are doing seven figures. I love Ray's philosophy of he only starts a business that's going to cost him 100 bucks to start and try, nothing more, and has found a lot of success in those businesses. Ray and his wife have a really cool, unique story. I have no doubt you're going to be tremendously inspired by it. And if you're a first-time listener, please pull out that phone at the subscribe button. If you like what you hear, Ray and I sure would appreciate it if you shared it with a friend. And if you need Spanish lessons, definitely check him out at LiveLingua.com. So please sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode with Ray Blankney. A lot of what I was to do in the rest of my life was formulated by the fact I just went and did it. Welcome to another episode of Misfits and Rejects. Today I'm joined by Ray Blakeney from LiveLingua.com. Ray, welcome to the show. Great to be here. Um, Yeah, it's a pleasure having you, brother. Thank you for taking the time. You're in Mexico right now. What city are you in Mexico?
1: I'm in a city called Querétaro. It's like three hours north of Mexico City in the middle of the mountains.
0: Okay, nice. Um, yeah, I've, I've heard you on past episodes. It sounds like a really interesting, beautiful place. How'd you wind up there?
1: I actually joined the Peace Corps. Um, and the Peace Corps has their Mexico offices here. So this is where I actually served in the Peace Corps. I served in southern Mexico in a state called Chiapas, working with indigenous communities in the, you know, the rainforest down there. Um, but the Peace Corps main offices were in this city. And after the Peace Corps, my wife and I decided to start business. We did like a business analysis of cities of where We could put a Spanish school, and there wasn't much competition, and we found out the city we started in was a great place to do it. So we ended up coming back here. Interesting. Did you meet your wife in the Peace Corps? Yeah, she was my Spanish teacher. Um, It's actually history repeating itself. My My mom was Peace Corps staff in the Philippines, and that's how my dad and mom met and it's ex- almost exactly the same age so our joke in the family i just had a son about three months ago and our joke is just have fun until you're like in your late 20s join the peace corps and go and get married <laughs> yes.
0: did your parents also bootstrap multiple seven-figure businesses i mean it sounds like you're following in their footsteps or what
1: Not at all. Not at all. My parents were missionaries in Turkey and ran a publishing house, so they actually kind of were in the business side of things, but they weren't the founders of it at all. the The house was the publishing house was owned by the church they worked for, and my dad ended up being like the CEO and the main editor for it. My mom took care of the administrative side of it. It was the number one English Turkish dictionary in Turkey where I grew up, and they were the ones who published it.
0: Interesting. So you're born. Your parent. Your sounds like your dad's Filipino. Your mom is from where?
1: All the way around. My dad's American from Boston, but he grew up in Rhodesia in Africa, and my mom's Filipino. But, for example, the U.S. side of my family, nobody has grown up in the U.S. Or in over 150 years, but like, you know, we're American going back multiple generations. But my grandfather was born in China. Uh, my dad grew up in Rhodesia. I grew up in Turkey and was born in the Philippines. So
0: so is it a lineage of missionaries? Is that how you're, you're always That's being?
1: It. I broke the I broke the mold and became an engineer. So I'm I'm the black sheep. Where it's usually missionaries and academics, so most of my family went to Harvard, MIT you know, MIT, all the rest of it. So I'm the black sheep. You know, didn't go to an Ivy League school and became an engineer and an entrepreneur.
0: That's fascinating. Any cool kind of uh, historical people in your lineage that are of note? I mean obviously all of them, but to the to the average listener.
1: <laughs> you wouldn't have heard of them, they but they've done some cool things. For example, my my great-grandfather, who I'm named after, Raymond Blakeney, is the first person to translate the Tao from Chinese into English because he was a professor at Harvard and he was actually doing a year abroad in Peking, what was called Peking, at the time. And they had to escape during the Boxer Revolution. My, great, my great-aunt my was born there and then they – you know, she was like three months old and they had to run away. Uh, my grandfather was the first – minister of the first all-black church in Harare in Rhodesia, and we found out later in life he actually worked for the CIA while he was there because he was trying to help uh, with some of the movement. I didn't. We didn't know that until he was like in his 80s. <laughs> Nobody in the family had any idea that he was doing that. So they're not famous in the traditional sense, but you look my name up online and you will find the Tao the, the translated by my grandfather. Um, it's public domain now, so anybody can use it, but it's still – that's who comes up. For my, for my grandfather – You might not find as much, but CIA spies don't generally come up and have their own Wikipedia pages.
0: That's so interesting. So at like 80-something, he
1: divulged that to you like, hey, by the way, I did this? I mean we knew some of the stuff he had done, but we just – since he ran the first all-black church in Harare, he had access to a lot of information, right? A lot of his clients were truck drivers. The people in his parishioners were truck drivers and people who worked out in the community. It was – you know people from Zimbabwe, locals. Um, and that was during the time when they were trying to fight the apartheid and all the rest of it. So that was his involvement. And he has at least two stories of like people would torture some people in his church and they'd leave it on his foot, you know, front doorstep, ring the bell, and then for him to take care of them afterwards because, you know, they were trying to fight for equal rights and they had trouble, <laughs> you know, they got into trouble for it. And they just kind of left it with, uh, you know, the token white man friend, which was my grandfather um, to take care of it.
0: Wild. That's so wild. I had um another guest, Rusty Labouchang on here from Zimbabwe, who um owned a game reserve and then had an incident with two people, um, which is this is not related to your story, just came up in my brain though. It's uh, and he chased them off his property on a lake. They're tra- they were legally fishing, and then they, they ran into the bush and disappeared, and then the next day he had police officers show up at his door claiming that he had murdered one of the men. And he spent, I believe it. He spent 10 years in Zimbabwe prison for it, for a crime he didn't commit. And now he's on a world tour telling a story about his experience, the corruption. And then he found enlightenment in the prison. It's a really fascinating story. Interesting, man. I'll send you the link to that. I'll put it in the show notes. Um, but you have a very interesting history, my friend. And it seems like you are paving the way for a new generation of, I mean, I know you have children, um, I have one
1: child, yeah. Oh, you
0: do? Okay, one. And yeah. so you're gonna you're showing them a very unique life that, I mean, from an American perspective, which I'm trying to convey to a lot of American listeners, is, is super cool, unique. Um, your child is boy or girl?
1: He's a boy. He's a little boy. A little boy. So he's how old? Three months, 12 oh, weeks. Oh, okay. Congratulations, <laughs> dude. So yeah, first thanks. child. First child, first child. We're trying to learn how to sleep at night. And, you know, I had to YouTube how to change diapers because it was not something I had ever done before in my life. So, you know, when you and I met there, my wife was like, the reason my wife wasn't in Thailand where you and I hung out was because she was eight months pregnant at the time.
0: Okay. Wow. So did you kind of, did you intentionally postpone getting pregnant to just kind of bootstrap all these businesses and, and do your thing? No,
1: no, not at all, actually. And I'm happy to talk about it. We spent seven years trying to have children.
0: Okay. Wow.
1: Uh, We went through about seven rounds of in vitro, spent close to $150,000, and I had given up. Uh, Mm -hmm. My wife said she wanted to try one more time. We found a doctor who was doing something new, tried it, stuck. So I was already actually comfortable with the fact that we were never going to have kids, which we both wanted them, but I kind of found other goals in life, which you have to. I mean, you can either enter depression at that point or you can say, okay, I'm going to make my life worthwhile without a child. Um, and there are plenty of people who do that—the role models that you can look up to—and uh, we were kind of trying to gear our lives to that. So nobody was as surprised as this we were that it worked. Um, and we had to do some quick course corrections. We were planning on, move, you know, my wife was halfway through a green card application. We canceled that once she got pregnant. Because you had planned to move back to Boston or back to the states somewhere. We're going to move back to the U.S. for about three to five years because my wife wanted to get her master's and maybe her doctorate um she's a teacher she wanted to get an education and then we were going to move back overseas we're looking at southeast asia um right now we're just looking once the child is three years old to skip straight to southeast asia um kind of go there we like the vibe it's got a very for those who haven't traveled before they get very intimidated by when they show up there the first time and i know you've been there before so you know it's kind of the energy is really different, right? When you're like in a downtown in that city, it just feels like you're surrounded by energy. And you can take it in in two ways. You can either be, wow, this is scary, or you can feed on it. And that's kind of how we feel. We're like everybody here seems to be doing something, whether it's the lady selling chicken on the street, you know, ch- barbecue chicken on the street, or whether it's, you know, the, the skyscrapers that are just kind of cropping up in these cities that 20 years ago would have been considered third world. Um, Everybody seems to be going somewhere and achieving something. And we like that dynamic and we want our son to be exposed to it.
0: Yeah, because I mean, you're a high
1: achiever as well. Where in Southeast Asia are you planning on going? Right now, the number one place, now we love Japan, which is not Southeast Asia, but we looked into visa situations there. And to visit, it's easy. To live there, they really, you know, unless. I divorced my wife and marry a Japanese, which I don't think my wife would really approve of that plan. There's, like, really no way for, like, a foreigner to live there for an extended period of time. You can get a one-year tourist visa if you have a quarter million dollars in the bank account, and that's it. Like, that's the maximum you can really do outside of being a student or getting a job there, which we don't want to do because we have our own um, jobs. So, otherwise, we're looking at Singapore. It seems a lot easier to get the get a visa it's very centrally located i mean you know it's like the hub one of the like three hub airports in that part of the world so you can just hop on a plane and be anywhere um and it has a very good education system which we're looking at if you guys ever see the studies about where the best schools in the world are it's always finland and singapore um and my wife is a teacher is very interested in finding out about that we'd like our son to be there as well because he's going to be bilingual spanish and english but we're going to, we want to send him to a mandarin school. So if he grows up, you know, fully fluent in mandarin, spanish and english, we figure he can speak in their native tongue to 60% of the planet. Um, so regardless of what he chooses for his career after that, just having that base there and an exposure to all those cultures will serve him well in his life and that's kind of the kind of thing we want to give him.
0: 100%. Do you speak Turkish and Tagalog? Or Yes,
1: I speak Turkish, Tagalog, Spanish and English.
0: Okay. Very nice. A little, little bit of English. A little bit of English. Real quick, just because I have had um, on a past episode, um, Kimmy talk about IVF and she was doing it in Nicaragua. She was living there and cost the cost obviously was a lot lower than trying to do it back in her own country of New Zealand or even the States or wherever. So have you, were you trying to do that in Mexico or you did that in Mexico?
1: We did it in, we did it in Mexico, yes. And the costs are about half. Nicaragua was much cheaper than uh, Mexico is. Everybody thinks that Mexico is a third world country and I have to remind them it's part of the G20. That means it's one of the 20 richest countries in the world. It's not that poor. It's only poor compared to, you know, maybe the richest, you know, certain parts of the U.S. I would argue that if you went to New Orleans and you came to parts of Mexico, there, are, you know, the parts of Mexico are a lot nicer than, you know, some of the poorer parts that you have see in some parts.
0: The cost of one round of IVF in – are you doing it in the city that you're doing it? Or that you're yeah,
1: we ended up doing it in Mexico City, which is about three hours away, um, because – The one that worked, we ended up doing in Mexico City. We did a number in our city, but the one that worked was in Mexico City. And actually, they were based – it's a clinic based out of New York City. They're just a branch um, based out of New York City. And so we did it there, and first time it hit. And because they did a lot more stuff that most places don't have access to. We did genetic testing on the eggs before implantation. So they eliminated like a third of them right off the bat because they just said – they look good on paper, right? But when they do the genetic testing, it wouldn't work. The other places never did that. So we might have been using eggs that had no chance of working because just normal genetic incompatibility of an egg and a sperm kind of get together. Um, and they got rid of that. And they had some other procedures, not wildly different from what we did everywhere else. But, you know, they did enough tweaks that apparently it worked.
0: And it's what, like 20, 30 grand a pop each round?
1: It's ten grand here. It's twenty, thirty grand in the U.S. Okay, yeah. The difference is in the U.S. Some insurance covers at least one or two tries here in Mexico. I mean, you have to pay in cash. There's no, you know, insurance to cover it. Yeah, I feel like
0: Nicaragua. She said it was like fifteen grand, so it might be cheaper in Mexico. But I'll have to go back and and double check those. Um, That's really interesting, man. Where did you get your entrepreneurial spirit? Like, where does that come from?
1: I think it came from my mom's side of the family. Um, but none of them kind of went to this level. So the moms, my mom's side of the family, my mom is one of seven and they were the first generation that went to college. Like my, my grandmother and grandfather there, they didn't finish high school, but they knew how important education was. So they worked really hard to get all of their kids through college. And a lot of those people ended up maybe by necessity going into quote unquote entrepreneurship, which. On my grandmother's level, it was simply she would go back to our farm and on the way back, they'd be selling cheap mangoes on the street. So she would buy those and then jump in a jeepney, go back to Cebu City and sell those for a markup, right? I mean it wasn't this kind of big plan with industry and businesses around them. They were very poor growing up. Um, I remember stories of my uncle putting out – building a cement tilapia bath in their backyard so they could sell fish. Um, And then my other uncle going and they're poking a hole in it because he was mad. And (laughs) then all these dead fish, the whole house (laughs) smelling like fish. (laughs) So um, I think it came from that side of the family. I was lucky that when I was born, I came from one side of the family who had none of my sides of the family are kind of wealthy or have a lot of um, business background. But my dad's side at least had a very strong academic background. So combining those two things, so me having access to a very high level of education – and the entrepreneurial spirit that came from my Filipino side, I think, is what led me into it. Everybody knew I was going to be an entrepreneur since I was eight, except for me. I'm like, i like, I remember distinctly when I was eight years old. Like, there's a yearbook, and they say, "Who's going to own a million dollar business?" And I was the kid that everybody picked. But I wanted to be, just be a computer programmer, which is what I studied and what I did for the first five years out of college. It didn't even occur to me until my late twenties, early thirties, to become an entrepreneur.
0: So, what they see in you, what did your peers see in you, that you didn't see in yourself, your hustle?
1: I think so. You know, I was that kid at the bake sales, um, who would just everybody would nobody wanted to sell, so they would put their cakes on my table and like, Ray, sell my cake for me, and I would just sell it. And I'd come up with like stories about, oh yeah, we imported this from from Japan, and this was handmade. I mean, pretty sure that was false advertising, and you wouldn't be allowed. To, I mean, you know, <laughs> you wouldn't be allowed to do it. But was an eight year old, ten year old kid. People thought it was cute, and they would always buy whatever it was I was selling on there, and I kept on doing that. Um, but not with that in mind. I just thought it was fun.
0: That's interesting, dude. What drives you, you think, when it comes to building a business? Is it the product, the money, the process, what is it?
1: What do I you, there's two there's two. I'll give you two answers for that. So the first one is what drives me and the, what drives me is the money, but I'll explain why. It's not, you look at me, I'm wearing a t-shirt I got for free. Um, I think I still have t-shirts from college and I graduated like 20 years ago that I haven't thrown away yet. So money doesn't matter. I drive a Hyundai. Um, even though, as you say, I run multiple seven figure businesses, I drive a Hyundai. I don't really care about the money. The reason I like money is the security it gives you. Um, again, I come from families that didn't really have very much money, high education, but not very much money. So I kind of read that Money was always a concern. Like I could see it on their faces, right? Oh, something goes bad. We're going to have a little trouble paying the bills this month kind of thing. Um, And I never want to have that feeling. So I'd like to get to the point where I have enough money in the bank account that even if all my businesses fail tomorrow, and I've lost businesses literally overnight before with Google algorithm changes, I want to be able to sit back and make sure me and my family are taken care of. Not at a rich lifestyle, but just, you know, the basics, food, housing, all the rest of it are taken care of. So that's the why I work. What I enjoy is the building of the businesses. That, to me, is art. It's creative. I love it. I mean, I go to bed at night, and I dream up business ideas, and I plan to strategize the sales funnels, and what are the websites going to be, what is the copy going to be on the website, and how, what marketing online marketing tools we can use to promote it. That, to me, is my idea of a good time.
0: Hmm. That's so interesting, dude. I love it. And how about your wife? I mean, I know she's passionate about teaching. Does she have the same kind of entrepreneurial spirit that you do?
1: She does now, but she learned it. Her passion really is teaching. I mean, she's the opposite in the sense that she was the one who would take her dolls at five and start teaching them in front of them. And, you know, there was no doubt. She knew since she was five she was going to be a teacher. She studied teaching in college and she became a teacher. Um, that is what her love is. She does appreciate the online world and what, especially, Live Lingua has given her the ability to do, which she's not only a teacher, now she trains teachers, she helps create materials and courses, and she really enjoys that. The money doesn't matter to her at all. I mean, not even to the level it matters to me. I mean, it just, she, she just says, "Ah, hey, Ray, you'll take care of it. And she doesn't worry about it. And she just does it for the fulfillment. I mean, she loves interacting with students. She, you know, her eyes light up when she's able to do that. And that's her passion. So this allows her to do it with students all over the world. She's had students from, Japan, you know, professors in the United States, Africa, all the rest of it. But now nowadays she only takes two just to keep her feet in the water. Um and she picks, you know, if she sees an interesting student profile who's looking for a teacher, then she's like, Yeah, I'll take that one. So she's she can be a little more picky. We have thousands of students, so she doesn't teach as much as she used
0: to. You said something interesting that she, she kind of learned her entrepreneurial spirit, which is an argument I've had with, you know, multiple guests. Like, is that something you can learn in your opinion? It sounds I, like you believe you can.
1: I think you can. Um, It kind of goes into the whole thing about my philosophy about passion, for example, right? They say that there's that old cliche saying of um, follow your passion or you'll never work a day in your life. I do definitely do not believe that. I believe in building your passion. I will never, I don't think I was passionate about entrepreneurship when I started, right? I just thought, yeah, kind of cool to try. Um, I didn't study it in college. Remember, I studied computer engineering. I knew how to write code. Um, I did a little management. I was a team lead, but it just wasn't, you know, that wasn't something really on the radar. But as I did it, as I read about it, as I learned it and became good about it, became good at it, it became my passion. So I'm a big proponent of building your passion. I don't think there's anything out there like you with you in surfing, for example. If you work so hard at it and become good at it, that you're not going to be passionate about that. I mean there are very few things in the world where that would be the case. Um, And I think entrepreneurship is something like that. You might have the spark when you're younger. But that doesn't mean you're going to be good at it. It doesn't mean you're going to be passionate about it. So – and there are probably people out there who never intended to be entrepreneurs. I mean you hear all those stories of people who become successful late in their life because they got fired from their jobs. It wasn't like, "Wow, well, I'm going to be an entrepreneur and that's a conscious decision I took and I became one. They learned how to do it bit by bit and after many, many failures. I've failed at tons of businesses, tons of them. Um, I kind of mitigate the risk with the reward. So, I don't have $10 billion businesses, but that's because I usually build my businesses for 50 to $100. Bucks. Um, and they'll figure out whether they work first, and then I'll hire staff later on down the road.
0: Yeah, you have, like you said, multiple businesses, and it sounds like you failed at a bunch. Have you created a system that now you can throw at any kind of business and it works? Like, I spoke pre episode about talking to Ronnie Teja. Who kind of did that you know he's got four businesses that he or I think maybe more than that up to 15 at this point and he just has one formula that he throws at any kind of idea and it works more or
1: less well like i have a for, i have two formulas one which for kind of pre-vetting my ideas so i do kind of a research in the beginning whether anybody's looking for it or if there's any market for it which involves keyword research and competitor research um so i do that and then I have a marketing method that I use on all of my businesses. I don't necessarily have a methodology. My businesses are so divergent. I mean, you know, they're just totally different business models. It's very different from, for example, somebody who's in e-commerce. Okay, you built a successful e-commerce rice cooker store, and now you're going to go into an e-commerce electric scooter store. They're both e-commerce. They kind of follow the same simple patterns. My businesses, I run a tutor website and marketing agency, a social media for schools and a chocolate factory. Uh, You know, it's, there is no one silver bullet that you can do on every single one of them, but the marketing you can, Um, you know, there's an online marketing methodology that you can do and apply to all of those. And that generally works in the long term. It's not, you know, again, not a silver bullet that three months down the road, you're something to have more sales than you know what to do with. It helps you build businesses over three to five years. Um, I joke that if I ever wrote a book, it'd be how to make a million dollar business in a decade and nobody in the world would buy it because that's all I know how to do. I can slowly build, you know, bootstrap a seven figure business, but most people don't want to put in that much work. How close are you to that financial freedom you described earlier? I have two levels for it and I'm about halfway to the minimum, um, level of the financial freedom. Honestly, I mean, we're at the point where if we, everything went down, we'd be okay for about a decade, I would say, uh, maybe a little bit more. Nah, probably more but in mexico more um but probably hopefully in the next five years and a lot of things can change i mean if somebody came and bought one of my businesses tomorrow i'd be done uh you know if they came and gave a good 5x multiplier for some of the businesses i'd be done um we're not quite ready to sell at least there's two that we're looking to do that at but i'm thinking about three years out for those um but i anticipate probably in 10 years i'll reach the minimum goal and i'm happy to share i mean my minimum goal is about is. 4.8 and 9.6 is my long-term, um, 9. 4.8 being million million. Yeah. 4.8 is my minimum. 9.6 million is my reach. Um, and the reason behind it is I figured 5% interest rate, you know, if I can get 5% returns at 4.6, I can essentially live off of a little over $10,000 a month adjusted for inflation for the rest of my life. Keep in mind, that's a very, you know, I have a very simple lifestyle, so that's plenty. I mean, you know, that's 10 grand a month live in Mexico, Southeast Asia, whatever that's comfortable. And I'd still probably build businesses, but then I just wouldn't worry about the money part. I have some ideas. I'd like to build a charity later in my life, um, and that's kind of what I'd like to move towards. 9.6 would be the same thing, but essentially it'd be 240000 um, know, a year, $20,000 a month, adjusted for inflation for the rest of my life. I can't imagine needing more than that. Mm-hmm. Um, with, that's without even touching the principal. I mean, that's literally having like a $10 million cushion for any emergency that happens to come up, and then you can still live on twenty grand every month. And that's even more than inflation. I mean, you'd probably be able to take it, you know, 23 grand, 24 grand, I think is the exact amount. So I have some pretty specific numbers that I'm working towards. Um, And once I get there, yeah, I'll switch to charity work, kind of building my own charity. And charity in what sector?
0: Like water? I would actually,
1: I would actually, entrepreneurship. Um, I would like to teach, um, people, especially in third world countries. I'm looking specifically at the Philippines right now. Uh. To be able to support their family through online – small online businesses. And the logic behind it is – and I might be naive once I you know start doing it. Because in the Peace Corps, I realized that was the case, right? You go in there with the best intentions and then there's a lot of stuff that kind of keep you from doing that. But if I could teach somebody how to build a $500 a month business in the Philippines, I would change their life. Nobody in the U.S. would even bother to build that business, right? I mean, it is just too small. I'm not going to spend six months working full time to build a $500 a month business. But if I went to the Philippines, that's how much an engineer and I, you know, at Texas Instrument makes. And I know this because my cousin is an engineer at Texas Instruments, and they pay him $500 a month. Um, but so you can take people out of abject poverty and make them middle upper class by teaching them how to build $500 a month online businesses. And I'd like to see if that kind of model would work. Um, and the whole basis behind the model is kind of. I don't want it to be a charity. I want it to be a social enterprise. So we would help people build the businesses, but we'd get like a 20% share in the businesses and that money would go back into it to train the next cohort of classes. Right. And you guys would all kind of work in this main co-working space. All the businesses would stay in the same ecosystem. Um, so, you know, if you went through our one year program, you owe like doing ROTC in college, you owe like a year or two of mentoring to the next people who come in. Um, And if you get lucky, one or two of those will be the Facebook, right? So they'll they'll build the Facebook, and owning ten percent of that, we'll be able to we'll just pay it right back into it, and be able to support hundreds, maybe thousands of people, kind of building their own small online businesses. Which even in a time of like you know that we're being in we're talking right now with COVID, they'd be immune to that, right? Because they're working from home, and able to support their family.
0: Yeah, no doubt. A little fun fact about me that you don't know but my audience does is this last five years, I've spent trying to build a $500 a month business, and I failed. <laughs> <laughs> Couldn't make but it work, dude.
1: You'd be great. You'd be great for the program because, uh, yeah, I mean, with the with what I've done, it's – When I say I failed at businesses, it's usually because they only make $500 a month. I mean, I have plenty of websites out there still making $500 a month, like, you know, on Matu, on Mutu. I have these like tutor directories for music teachers and stuff. I consider those failures Um, primarily because I just probably didn't spend enough time on them and focus on them. Mm -hmm. But I found that it's really not that difficult to make a $500 a month business online in a year. I mean, again, this is not a three month course. You can do it in three months if you, you know, if you get a little bit of luck and you do the work. But in a year, I can pretty much. I'm not going to say guarantee, but 80% chance, 90% chance of a $500 a month business.
0: And you have a course on this already? Or you, this is a, a future
1: oh, project? A lot of this stuff. Yeah, this, is a, this would be a future project for the charity. I don't have a course on that. Um, I'm just getting into courses now because until – the interesting thing is um, I'm an introvert. Most people can't don't realize that when they meet me because I can be very outgoing when I need to be. But I actually did not do any networking until about three years ago. So I built this – a live lingua from my house, um, you know, in my pajamas. And I never had a chance to interact with other entrepreneurs. So until I went to my first conference, which was a really small one in Austin with about 20 or 30 people. And I kind of got in there and I'm like, everybody here is gonna know way more than me. So you know just shut up and don't say don't don't say anything stupid. By the end of the conference I realized in that particular group, I knew more than everybody in the room, including the people arranging the conference, because I'd been at it for longer and my business was considerably bigger than any of theirs. It's taken me a while to realize that I actually, you know, that the stuff I know, I just assume everybody else does. So it never even occurred to me to make a course because I'm like, everybody knows this stuff. Why would I teach it? Nobody wants to pay for this. Um, it's only recently, after being, net, you know, going out in the networking, people ask me, just like you did, do you have a course for that? And I'm like. Well, I should probably guess. I could make one. I mean, I know I, you know, I know the stuff, but I just never even occurred to me to do so. So I'm trying to catch up with that, and I just started like literally a month or two ago uh, with my first first coursework. So hopefully, some of those will come out pretty soon.
0: That's cool that I'm interested. <laughs> Sign me up, and I can help you create a course because I've created a course for my uh, surf stuff. So
1: awesome, awesome. Yeah, this is gonna be my these are my first tries, along with a few other businesses I'm launching during this time as well. Luckily. The online language business is doing very well because of COVID because a lot of people are um, signing up. So instead of just taking the money and running with it, I'm reinvesting it into other business ideas um, that I have. So hopefully accelerating some of those. Um, so hopefully some of them will come out soon.
0: That's rad, Did see? So yeah, let's get into LiveLingo. Why live LiveLingo? Why was that your
1: flagship? Uh, yeah, well, see – the interesting thing about LiveLingua is it was born during a pandemic, uh, and now it's thriving during another pandemic. So the story behind LiveLingua is my wife and I, when we were done with the Peace Corps, we decided, hey, let's start a business together and get married. Yeah, I wouldn't necessarily recommend that as the path most people take to do both of those things at the same time. But for us, at least, it did work out. So – the first thing we launched was a brick-and-mortar language school in Mexico for Spanish. Um, we were familiar with the business model. My wife had worked at a lot, and I had learned Spanish through one of them as well. So essentially, people would come from the U.S. We would put them with a the Mexican family, and you'd come with us during the day, and we'd give you classes, and we'd do tours and all the rest of it. I think six months into that, and all the only money we had when we started, that was the $2,000 the Peace Corps gives you when you leave. And it's mainly to buy you a plane ticket back to the U.S., but I said, hey, let's use it to start a business. Um Luckily, I learned about SEO search engine optimization at that time. And by the time we launched, we were number one in Mexico. You look for Spanish school in Mexico, we were number one. So the first month, we were fully booked. They would pay the deposit. We would run out and use that deposit to buy furniture because we had no furniture in our school building. So, you know, we did tables. And I remember the first few times we didn't have enough furniture for all the rooms. So during lunch breaks, my wife and I would check change tables from rooms so that people would think they were in different rooms. But I'm sure some of them noticed they were actually sitting at the same table. They were in another classroom earlier that day. Six months in, um, swine flu hit Mexico. I don't, for those who don't remember, it was supposed to be a global pandemic that was really scary. And they essentially closed off Mexico. Nobody could fly in. Nobody could fly out. And as, overnight, all of our students canceled, except ironically for four doctors from the U.S. who thought it was kind of silly. And they just came and studied with us anyway. But that wasn't enough to keep us going. And a lot of our teachers were working week to week Not because we didn't pay them well, but it's just financial planning. And I think in the US, it's not that different, right? Where people just, you pay them on Monday and by Friday, they're out of money and they're holding off to the following Monday. So we needed to find a way for them to make money. This was back in 2008. My wife actually is the one who had the idea. I was like, why don't we contact our old students and see if they want classes over Skype and see if they can, you know, at least bring some income in so we can pay the teachers. So I thought that was a great idea. We emailed the old students and surprisingly, a large number of them said yes. So from there, I'm like, why don't I just throw up a website? I'm a computer engineer, not a computer graphic designer, mind you. It was an ugly looking website, but it was there. Um, And I threw it up and I'm like, "Eh, let's see if anybody else signs up. Within six months or so, it was making more money than our brick and mortar language school. The, The swine flu pandemic ended in about 30 days and everything went back to normal. We were fully booked again. But within six months for only an hour of work a day, we were making much more on our online classes than we were in our Break and mortar school. So from there, I launched all these other micro sites like English site, you know, English language. It wasn't all under LiveLingua at the time. Um, And they all succeeded. All 11 sites were doing well. So we decided to sell the school, which at that time became three branches. We had three different branches around Mexico Um, and we sold those. And we focused in on the online school, which eventually became what we call LiveLingua right now.
0: Hmm. That's fascinating, dude. And then, yeah. So then from there, what was the next business that you started? That kind of took off.
1: I was going to say that took off would be a yeah. The next business I started, I spent you know after we sold the business and I built Live Language, I'm like, well, this is easy. And I uh, you know I just followed every shiny object that came around, and yeah, and then a week here, a week there. Um, I can't even remember all the ones that failed. The next one probably was Twiducate, which was is an online. It's a gated community social network for um, for schools in the United States, and I'm going to say it succeeded within quote quotation marks. So I built it initially for use at Live Lingua, so that teachers could have a kind of a, essentially a private Facebook group for each one of their students. Is kind of how it works. Um, but we don't ask for emails of the students, so it's you can use it with kids. So we have no private information on the kids. The, the teacher creates an account for the student. It generates a random digit number and a random password, and you pass that to the kid. And we have no idea who the kid is, what their name is, which is you know privacy protection. Like everything, when I build something, I'm like, huh. Well, might as well just offer it to everybody. See if that sticks. It did, and that's how we got up to two hundred thousand users. The most of them are in K th- teachers in K through twelve, and then their students were registered for it. Slight flaw in my plan is that teachers don't make that much money. So whenever I try billing for something, yeah, it doesn't really work. So it doesn't actually generate very much income. I keep it up there kind of as a giving back project right now. Um, and it gives me access to a mailing list of you know close to 40,000 teachers. So there is a benefit there. Uh, but generally speaking, it's not like a huge financial success on that end. So that was probably the next business that did pretty well. That's rad,
0: dude. Um, and then I, I definitely want to get to the chocolate factory, but before that, what's the infinite upcycle? Cause I know that's another business. That's
1: yeah. Yeah. That's actually relatively new. And it goes back to what we were talking about before, right? Where I didn't realize people didn't know these things. And I just assumed everybody, them so the infinite upcycle is my marketing agency where we do something called content amplification which helps get your website out um in fr- your business in front of people and takes your website ranking up over the long term i want to stress that it's again not a three months six months you're not gonna be number one in google in 30 days this is something you have to do year after year and it's what i've been doing in my businesses for marketing this is what you talked about before do you have something that you do in all your businesses this is it It's gotten LiveLingo up to 4 million visits, and actually this year, if it continues at this rate, we'll probably pass 6 or 7 million visits um, on LiveLingo. This year, it's got Twidgicate up to 200,000 registered users. So I thought everybody was doing this. Not a big deal. I got invited to speak at a conference, a small conference of about 50 people about a year and a half ago. And I'll be honest, the night before... I had so much work to do that I hadn't prepared anything. So what I decided to do is like, "Eh, it'll be boring. Everybody knows this stuff, but at least let me just talk about what we do in my marketing department. You know, at least I'll have something. So I purposefully put together this awful slide deck and I kind of, I really doubled down on how bad it was. I made a comic sans and I put like, you know, little cartoons all over it. And I'm like, okay, if it's going to be bad, it's going to look really bad on purpose. Right. You know, kind of own it if you're going to do it. And I went and gave the speech. People actually surprisingly loved the, loved it, even though half of them came up. Did you know you're not supposed to use Comic Sans in a presentation? I'm like, yeah, I knew. I mean, I purposefully did that on purpose. Um, and half the people in the room, a lot of whom were business owners, asked me if I could do it for them. And my answer at the time was no. I mean, I just do this internally in my company. What do you mean do it for you? Are you, you guys are actually would pay me money to do this? I thought everybody did this. And that's where the idea was sparked for the infinite upcycle. It wasn't called that at the time because I hadn't branded it in any way, shape, or form. Um, So that kind of planted the idea. Then based on that talk, I actually got invited to speak at another one, which is where you and I met, um, in Thailand. Somebody saw me there and said, look, would you come and give that same talk in Thailand in front of a larger group of entrepreneurs? Um, And that's when it occurred to me. I'm like, look. If I could get this, you know, a small group people are interested in. This big group people will definitely be interested. This year, I had a number of other talks lined up. Right now, they're kind of up in the air. Um, so I figured, hey, maybe this could be something because I've done, I've been speaking now for about two years, but I really had nothing to promote through my speaking. If you sign up for Live will great, I get another two or three students, but like the return on that is students worth like a hundred bucks over their lifetime. You know I'm not going to go around the world speaking just to get one or two students out of every conference. It's just not worth mm-hmm. worth the time. agency it's, it's a higher profit margin. Um, so I talked to a good friend of mine who I've known for years great salesperson, great marketer, um, was was working as the head of marketing for a more traditional company at the time. And I'm like, look, are you interested? Luckily, he said yes, because I told him, I don't have the bandwidth to do this myself. I mean, I have too many businesses right now that I cannot be running um, this business, but I have the method, I have the network, I have the possible clients, um, but I need you to run the day-to-day operations. And that's pretty much how it was born. Um, so we launched that about six months ago now, and it until recently, it was going pretty, very well um, with, the, with the corona thing where we, clients are putting their accounts on freeze, which we're allowing, you know, which we let them do, of course. Um, they're not really canceling, but they're saying, look, let's just not continue with this until all of this passes. Um, I don't know if I necessarily agree with that, not just for the financial thing for us, but if you're a business that lives on sales and you're not bringing enough money in right now, Lives on marketing and sales, and you're not bringing enough money right now. You should be cutting off your marketing and sales. You're essentially turning off your oxygen at the worst time. Um, so, generally speaking, I think most businesses right now maybe they don't do as much marketing as before, but don't cut it off. Kind of maybe take it down to a lower level because that'll keep you ready that when this does pass, and I do believe this will pass. I don't know when, but it will pass. You guys are already out there. You're not. You know, you haven't stopped your car and have to accelerate from zero anymore, right? You've been kind of going around at. 50 five and now you want to go back up to 100 again that's a lot easier you're going to beat all your competitors who stopped and are just kind of you've been gaining you know you've been gaining ground on them ever for the last few months and now they're trying to catch up to you now you're six months ahead you're 12 months ahead because you haven't stopped so i for those who can i realize it's not possible for everybody you should still be doing a little bit of
0: marketing in this time 100 percent. i skipped over your podcast do you also have a podcast which does what Talks about what? Yeah,
1: this is a passion project My podcast is called The Anomalous Educator Um and I'm trying to help teachers and education businesses move online. So I have a lot of guests who have either done it, you know, somebody who sold a million dollars in courses on Udemy every year to schools who have moved from, you know, the brick and mortar like us onto the online space. And then I bring on marketers and everything so that we can teach. You can learn a little bit about it. But that's a passion project. I'm not selling anything. I have no products. I have no course. It's just something I do um, to hopefully give back a little bit.
0: And then I was on your website and talked about um, partnerships and having like your your wife as a business partner yeah <laughs> and now you have a new business partner with the infinite upcycle what <laughs> what do you think about partnerships and and relationships and taking your relationship with your loved one into a partnership
1: well that's okay I'll, I'll answer them separately as well okay with your wife I would say probably don't I mean I love my wife we have a great relationship but uh, after going through it, there's only two possible things that can happen. And I think it's 60% one direction, 40% the other 60% chance you'll probably get divorced. Yeah. 40% chance you're going to come away with a super strong relationship afterwards. Mm -hmm. There is no middle ground. You will not come away with a relationship that's, Hey, we're about the same. No, it's one of those two things. And if you go into a relationship with your wife, you know, in a business relationship with your wife, you need to make sure that that's there. Also, one thing that helped us a lot, Luckily is that we have very different skill sets and that was kind of clearly defined from the beginning that this is your area academics and teaching and this is my area. You know the business and the marketing and you know the financial part of things and we really rarely I will not argue with her on you know academic decisions and she will not argue with me on financial ones Um, and that has something that's really kept us sane and with a strong relationship and another key is learning how to argue You know, I have my wife's a strong Latino woman and she's the one who taught me this because I come from the US where we don't like to argue. Um, But she arguing frequently, I think, is the key for that to work, Um, because the way I kind of describe it, it's like letting off steam bit by bit. So you argue, you get past it. You know, you argue about something that's happening in the moment and you get past it. And then maybe a week later, you argue about something that happens in the movement in the moment. You get mad, you make up, you get past it. That's very different from you holding something in for a few years and then, like, after five years saying, damn, for the last five years, you've been doing this and I can't put up with it anymore. That's what leads to divorce, right? Because by then, there's nothing you can't, you know, irreconcilable differences, I think is the word that people use. But if you argue in the moment and you both, you know, make an honest attempt to, you know, solve what you're talking about in that moment, like, don't leave your socks on the floor, for example. I mean, a non business example there, I think that will lead to a longer. Stronger relationship um, when you're working with your spouse on the other side is when you're starting with business partners um, that are not you're not in a romantic relationship with At least for me, it's only worked with people I've known for a long time before I became business partners with them So my business partner in the chocolate factory in the Philippines, I was her mentor for three years Um, Her first business did not did not succeed um, And I was her mentor through all of that Then she won a scholarship to go and study chocolatiering in Belgium Uh, and we stayed in touch while that was going on. She was there for a year. She went and came back and she's like, Ray, I'd like to start a chocolate factory here in the Philippines producing Belgian chocolate with our local cacao. Nobody's doing this. And I talked to my wife because that was actually a significant financial investment. You don't start a factory on $50, unfortunately. Um, just the machinery was, was kind of expensive. So I talked with her and she's like, yeah, that'd be cool. I love chocolate. Me personally, I like gummy bears. I'm not much of a chocolate guy, but hey, you know, it sounded like a new adventure. So we did it and it worked out. I mean, we, not a huge financial, it makes money, but it's not like a huge financial thing. But I hadn't been back to the Philippines in 10, 15 years, but so when we started the chocolate factory. I go, we went back every year for a month. My wife had never been there. Um, but now she knows my family in the Philippines really, really well because we've just spent a lot of time there over the last few years. And it worked out well. My other partner's the same. I was in a mastermind with him for three years before I ever this opportunity came up. I knew him well. He's one of my best friends before we started the partnership. Um, and that worked out well as well. I have no experience like in partnerships with people I just met casually. I don't think that general that's that's like you know throwing a dart with your eyes closed. It might work out, but not too likely, I think.
0: but it sounds like the skill set thing also comes into play because obviously you don't know anything about chocolate. Uh, you know a lot about business, so that was that. That helped that relationship, along with the friendship. And then the individual you brought into the infinite upcycle. Does he have a different skill set than you? That makes it.
1: We have some overlap, um, but we've separated things out pretty clearly from the beginning. I mentioned him. He needs to be the operational manager. I don't have the time, so I'll be the face of it. I will be, you know, I'll teach you the methodology that we've been using. We have documentation. I have systems. All the rest of it. I so that's my investment in this business. So it wasn't that our skill set was entirely different. It was that our responsibilities in the company are entirely different. And even with him, we had a written out contract with this is what you do, this is what I do um, from day one. And he he was very happy with it as well just because there's no gray area as far as this is what you do, um, this is what I do. And so far, I mean we're about six months into it. I don't think we've had any major you know, we've had no, no issues, and we work well together. We knew that. Being in a mastermind together for three years, the way we kind of bounce ideas off each other, even if we don't agree. He looks at certain things in different, different ways than I do, but we usually come to a middle ground, and that's usually the best answer. It's not my idea or his idea. It's something in the middle that works out pretty well.
0: I had a past guest on, Alex Tidal, from Nicaragua. He's actually American, but he wanted to start a hostel in Nicaragua. And uh, he befriended a Nicaraguan man who kind of had the same idea. And, he, and the Nicaraguan guys, let's be partners. He said, great, but the only way that's going to happen is if I come live with you and your family for a month. I want to I want to know what kind of family you come from, and I want you to get to know me really well. And I thought that was a really cool, unique way of doing it because they're still business partners to this day. They have a great relationship, he said, but he's like, I had to get to know this person's family, his value systems. Before I, you know, gave the green light on this partnership because, yeah, like you said, a lot of these partnerships just, especially with a random person you just meet, and I see it all the time in Nicaragua. It's like there's a Nicaraguan who speaks English, so they automatically assume they're trustworthy and that they're going to help you grow a business. And the next thing you know, like your bar has no liquor in it and all the cash registers are empty. You know,
1: well, that's it, and you can't do anything because they're the locals. Yep. You know, they're the, the you know the law is essentially going to fall on their side, regardless of whether you know you're the one or they're the ones. Who um you know broke the law. You will always be the guilty one in those cases. So yeah, I would definitely not do that, especially in another country.
0: No, yeah, dude. It's just so interesting to watch people and a lot of people know this going into these uh cultures and business relationships, but somehow their brain just stops working. And then they still they think
1: leave. it's not gonna happen to me, right? I'm gonna be the one who succeeds. It's you know, that's not gonna happen to me. And it always does. It yeah. always does.
0: Totally dude. Man, this is really cool. I love hearing all the nuanced you know, businesses that you have and the ways you've started them with just the hobbies that you have. I've read on your website that you're a sword fighter. Is that real or is that just yeah. a tongue in cheek
1: joke? Oh no, no. That's it's a tongue-in-cheek joke because it's technically a Japanese martial arts, but not at all. I was actually I've been practicing Japanese sword fighting kendo for almost twenty years now. Um I was actually I went to the US and I was, competed at a national level in the United States in kendo and I still do it today. There's a dojo here in the city that I'm at and I until this started, I used to practice three times a week, two hours. I, you know, When we met in Thailand, if I disappeared two of those nights, because I actually practiced with the national team in Thailand twice while we were at the conference. I went out there. I brought, my, I brought some of my gear. They lent me some of their sparring gear, and I was out practicing with them. Woo, a lot harder than 100% humidity. So uh, I'll yeah. tell you that. So, what,
0: yeah. what do you find so um, interesting about sword fighting? Like what, drew, what drew you to it, I guess is my question.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it falls into, again, what we talked about earlier, where if you work hard at it and you become good at it, you become passionate about it. So I tried a whole, I always wanted to learn martial arts since I was a kid, probably misguided like a lot of kids. You know, you see the Japanese anime and the Kung Fu movies and all the rest of it, and you want to be the guy jumping off the walls and shooting fireballs and all the rest of it. So I tried Taekwondo, I tried karate, I tried Kung Fu. Um, Hongar. I mean, I think I've tried at least 20 different types of martial arts. And I just stumbled across kendo, right? Google search and, oh, kendo, that's a new martial art. Let me go and try that. And from the first day, I loved it. I mean, it was just something about it that resonated with me. And then I ended up being really good at it. Um, and the thing that I like about kendo that actually, I, you know, I apply a lot of the philosophies in kendo to my life. Kendo is about beating yourself first. It's not about beating somebody else. And I'll be honest, it's not practical at all. Unless I happen to be walking down the street and you don't have a gun on you, I am – it's useless, right? I mean like I'm walking down the street with a sword and you don't have a gun, I got you. Otherwise, you know, there's no practical application really to Kendo. The interesting thing about it is there are only four attacks in Kendo. Four ways of attacking people and there are no blocks because blocking is kind of – look, there are kind of ways you parry and you attack out. Um, But – you should not be sitting there just blocking yourself because that shows that you've already lost. It means the other person's controlling the fight, and all you're doing is reacting and trying not to get hit. The other person is the one who's doing the attack. and I love the philosophy there because it's it's about doing things simply, simple things and doing them right over and over and over again. That's what it, what I do in business. Um, that's what I try to do in life. There's no trick. there's no hack. You build a business, a million dollar business in ten years. There are unicorns out there, but most of us aren't those. Um, you, you know, it'll take you a while to do it. You have to show up every day. You know, practice your swing, and then get tired and show up the next day and practice your swing again. And even though you think you're good, I promise you. Ten years down the road, you're gonna look back at where you are now, and you're gonna like, wow, I didn't know what I was doing. Business is the same, life is the same. You know, you think I got this, and there's always something that is going to throw you off. And kendo is all about that. Four attacks in the entire thing, and you spend 20 years doing it, and I'm still working on it. And the the thing about kendo is it's it's a full contact sport, but you can practice it until the old age. I mean, the masters in Japan are 80 years old um, just what you've at that time changes. I've, I've had the chance to spar with 70, 80 year old Hachidan, which is the highest level you can get in Japan. You know, people who practice with the police force, um, generally outside of Japan, it's not very well known, but in Japan, like all the police dojos, that's what they teach the police officers. That's kind of the art that a lot of the police officers do. And the first time I sparred with somebody at that level, it was surprising because, you know, I'm younger I also do CrossFit, so I'm I know I'm stronger than he is. I know I'm taller than he is. I'm faster than he is. I could not hit him. Didn't matter what I did, I could not hit him. Um, because his technique was so much better than mine. Any trick I tried, he had seen a million times before. Not that I, you know, I was faster than he was, but he already knew what I was gonna do. So he was like 10 steps ahead of me, moving out of the way and whack, you know, calmly whacking me over the head. Um I love that about Kendo. It's just, you know, something I can apply to my daily life. It's, it's got a lot of meditation. You start class with meditation, you end class with meditation, a lot of respect, um, to the, to the opponent. It's not about winning. It's about, you know, showing your spirit. Um, so I could talk all day about it, but I don't want to bore your audience too much. I Um, actually
0: have one more question. Is there a Kendo master, a Japanese general, some historic figure that you admire that you could give us a little inspirational quote from?
1: Well, um, it wouldn't be the general the, – oh, I can – it's actually on my Facebook page. I can't remember. Oh, that's um, okay. That's where I saw it. I just wondered if that was
0: the individual that
1: you look up to the most. It, yeah, his name is Musashi, um, and he's written a, a book called The Book of the Seven Rings, and you can actually read about his story. He's not a really nice guy, honestly. I mean, if you, you know, the, the old samurais were not known for being cuddly, warm, inspirational figures, right? I mean, he – He got like one of his opponents drunk or he'd show up late to a duel on purpose just so they would get mad and they'd lose their composure. And he would wear like smelly clothes just because that would also make them lose their composure and then he would just kill them with a a swipe of his sword. Um, But his philosophy was all about mastering the art of the sword, which in Japanese philosophy is all about mastering the art of life. It's very Zen, right? I mean, it's kind of just focus on one thing. One of the phrases I like in Kendo, when you're looking at your opponent, you look at him like you're looking at a mountain. Um, So you're not focusing on the nose, the point of his sword, his feet. You're looking at the whole thing so that you can catch any little movement or any little change and you can react to it. And that's something that I like a lot in life. So I'll go with that. Um, You know, look at life like you look at a mountain, not like you're looking at individual stones on a mountain.
0: That'd be a great thing to close on, but I will ask you one more question. If you could speak to one audience member and give them a little insight, inspiration to help them over that little hump of fear, you because know, they, they're scared of starting that first business, taking that first flight to a unknown foreign land, what would you tell them?
1: Follow in Nike's footsteps and just do it. Um, the fear will never go away. It's more of a matter of facing it and beating it, and you'll, it, you'll be a little less scared next time. And a little less scared the next time, a little less scared the next time. Maybe it'll never go away. But unless you take that first step, you're never going anywhere.
0: Awesome, Ray. Thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate your time, man. It's
1: been awesome. It's been a pleasure.
0: Awesome, Ray. Thank you so much for your time. Such an inspiration to me, especially for where I'm at right now within my entrepreneurial journey. And I love what you say about you know starting businesses for no more than 100 bucks. That's definitely what I can afford to do right now. And we'll continue to try. Remember, folks, if you are a first-time listener, please hit that subscribe button. Please share this episode with a friend. We definitely appreciate you if you're a regular listener coming every week to support Misfits and Rejects and hopefully get a lot of inspiration from stories like Ray. And if you want to learn Spanish, go check out Ray's website at LiveLingua.com. Thank you again for listening. I think you all are so very beautiful. I'll see you next week's episode. Ciao. Thank you for listening to Misfits and Rejects. I hope this inspire you to think about your life situation, where you're at, and possibly make a big decision to choose something different for yourself if you're unhappy with where you're at in life. I hope these people that I interview inspire you to go out, spread your wings, and try something new, to live a different lifestyle that maybe your whole life people were telling you was the wrong one, but when in fact it's the perfect one for you